Good afternoon. This is Greg Lois. Welcome to Indemnity and Medical Benefits, our New York Workers' Compensation Series. Happy March, everyone, and uh, I hope you have a great, uh, fun St. Patrick's Day weekend. Uh, we certainly had a great uh, St. Patrick's Day event here on Saturday, uh, Friday, uh, which also happened to be Third Friday, so that was a lot of fun for us. So let's talk about what we're going to be looking at today, indemnity, medical benefits um, going forward next month, April, common litigation issues, May, discovery hearings, trials, and appeals. And my goal, as you know, is to give you a great overview of the topic and then answer as many questions as I can. Uh, today's presentation is 57 slides, so I know that's a lot of slides, uh, but we have a lot of information to go through today. And I want to encourage people um, to ask your questions. I can see the questions pop up. I will answer as many as I can at the end. I will not embarrass you. I'll just say your first name so you know I'm asking that, or I'm answering your question. But just go ahead and ask that question because even if you think this is a, an easy question, I bet you there's someone else who wishes you had asked it, uh, particularly those who are watching this uh, back on video. So why are we doing this webinar? What are we talking about? What are we, what's our goals here? Um, your goal in your New York workers' compensation case is to get in control of this case. Uh, we're going to talk about, as we go through this series, ways that employers can reduce your exposure, um, what kind of things that we can do and what we can influence with you. I really want to help explain the judicial system and its biases to you, and again, focus on practical ways to reduce exposure. Our focus here at Lois Law Firm is on getting these cases closed. Hashtag defend from day one, right? That's our overall outlook here. So um, there's lots of other ways to learn. Uh, we have handbooks. You can go to our website, which is loislc.com forward slash publications. You can download our 2023 handbook. That's our comprehensive guide to New York Workers' Top Defense. Uh, I know attending webinars, like nobody needs one more video meeting, right? Uh, but all of these webinars are also available to you as a podcast, and our firm does four uh, podcasts a month on different topics in workers' compensation and associated civil litigation. And if you're looking for something next level, like 201 level, I keep pushing people to check out my partner Christian Cisan's podcast. It's called Third Fridays. Uh, it is available on every popular podcast platform or at loislc.com forward slash podcast. What is Lois Law Firm? Well, our vision is to be the go-to workers' comp defense firm for the best employers and carriers nationally. And just as important to us as being the best place to work. Our firm mission is to help you get in control and stay in control of your cases, whether it's New Jersey or New York or any other jurisdiction we practice in. Our goal is to drive that case to closure. Our values at this law firm are creativity, advocacy, professionalism and service, and that really influences everything we do. And so I do like to tell people when they join one of our webinars, hey, this is our outlook, and that's why we um, bring this singular focus to what we're doing. So today, this presentation, we're going to be talking about wage replacement, medical benefits, what is maximum medical improvement, when you can stop paying the claimant wage replacement, talk very briefly about labor market attachment and the claimant's requirement to remain attached to the labor market, I'm going to talk about some theory and why we like to avoid tentative rates in our cases. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about the medical treatment guidelines and the onboard system. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. 
So let's remember where we are in this overall system. The workers' compensation system uh, provides benefits to the employee, and those are primarily medical treatment, indemnity benefits, and that's just money benefits, broken down into two categories. You're either temporarily totally disabled or partially temporarily disabled. And then once the uh, uh, claimant has reached maximum medical improvement, then they are then may be entitled to either permanent disability or if they pass away, death and dependency benefits. So medical benefits are going to be the subject of today's presentation. We're also going to talk about wage replacement. And when you think about the sequencing of benefits, it's important for us to think about these are the benefits that the claimant's going to be entitled to, the injured worker is going to be entitled to right after the time of the accident. Okay. And when we think about how these are sequenced, medical treatment is always going to be provided, whether it's curative or palliative. Okay. Uh, under our statute, we must provide all curative treatment, and that's treatment that is going to cure or relieve the symptoms of the injury or illness. But then we also have to provide them with palliative care, and that was, that's care that just maintains them at their level of functioning or just helps them to feel better. That's the definition of palliative. Wage replacement benefits, those indemnity benefits, end when the claimant reaches maximum medical improvement. When they have reached maximum medical improvement and they still have a permanent medical impairment, then they could be entitled to permanent disability. And New York's got two schemes, scheduled loss of use for enumerated body parts and loss of wage earning capacity for all uh, body parts that are not covered uh, by the scheduled loss of use um, uh, uh, schedules. So that's really how this sequence and all fits together. The claimant, again, always entitled to both curative and palliative treatment and it's limited only by the medical treatment guidelines. Once that treatment is no longer curative, we should be pushing that the claimant has reached maximum medical improvement. <clears throat> and why is that important? Again, it's because that uh, temporary disability benefit, that wage replacement benefit, will then end. And oftentimes, that's the driver in these cases. Uh, palliative care after maximum medical improvement has been reached is going to be uh, required under our statute. And at maximum medical improvement, we should be pushing for a permanency rating, and that's if the claimant has a permanent residual disability. Now, just some quick concepts, just to put this into some perspective. Please remember, the claimant cannot be both temporarily and permanently disabled at the same time. We do have cases where the claimant is temporarily disabled, uh, is able to return to work or gainful employment, and is working for a while, and so, again, temporary disability is ended. And then they need more treatment, maybe they need surgery and they're going to go out and, and during that recovery period from that surgery, they would be again entitled to temporary disability benefits. So that's what we're going to focus on today, medical treatment and the interplay with wage replacement benefits. Um, the litigation or the determination of permanent residual disability, that's going to be reached in an upcoming session. So we're not going to reach that today. Now, when we talk about these topics, I want us to be mindful about whether the uh, defenses or the challenges we're going to put in place are either tactical or strategic, right? And the difference between a tactical or strategic uh, argument or issue to be raised. Oftentimes in a workers' compensation case, we're ha having these tactical fights uh, over, for example, things like uh, the need for a specific medical care or has the person reached maximum medical benefit, right? Uh, have they reached maximum medical improvement? Those are all tactical fights. Uh, they don't have a strategic impact in the case. But when we get to the uh, claimant's 
permanent residual impairment, that's either medical impairment or loss of function or inability to work, that's gonna have a strategic impact on the case. And so it's important to think about how we're being positional as we litigate and defend these matters. All right, let's begin by talking about indemnity benefits. What are indemnity benefits? Well, remember, we are exposed and liable to treat any injury arising out of the course of employment, and that's regardless of fault. This is a no-fault system. Uh, workers are going to receive a limited wage replacement benefit, and it's going to be subject to a maximum and a minimum uh, during the time that they cannot work because they're recovering from their injury. These we're going to call indemnity benefits, and remember, they're paid on top of medical benefits. So we will sometimes issue an attack on temporary disability benefits, and the reason we're gonna do that is either to create some leverage or momentum in a case. What we've learned is that, um, well, this, this uh, uh, area is full of bad actors, and the claimant is oftentimes seeking medical care, not because they need the medical care, but because they need those out-of-work notes. Uh, we've discovered that when we attack on temporary disability about whether the claimant can or cannot work, um, that creates the leverage towards a settlement. Um, and the reason is because really they're not seeking medical care because they need it, they're just seeking that medical care uh, because they're trying to remain out of work for as long as humanly possible. It's the reason why in this system where the claimant gets to choose their own physicians are generally not choosing very good doctors. Uh, you know, in the cases that we're seeing, and remember I only see litigated cases, or in other words, cases where there's a problem and they have to go to court, uh, the claimant is not choosing the best orthopedic surgeon. They're choosing the orthopedic surgeon typically that their attorney is sending them to and who's going to keep them out of work the longest. So when we attack on that, it's really to get some momentum or leverage in a case. We can also force the claimant to actively pursue their claim, which creates a burden on them. Remember that the claimant uh, doesn't really want to go back to work, doesn't want to attach back to the workforce, uh, is really kind of enjoying their time sitting home drinking beer and getting paid money to watch Judge Judy all day. And so it's our job to create that burden to make them do something active to pursue their claim. And oftentimes, just making the claimant do the bare minimum, the bare necessity, is enough to bring them to the settlement table and to get the case resolved. So I think you should attack on temporary disability because of all of these factors. First, the claimant has a high degree of control over their lost time, and they can control this lost time by selecting physicians. And again, they're generally not gonna pick the best doctors, they're gonna pick the doctors, they're gonna pick the doctors that keep them out of work the longest. They can also delay treatment. Um, and what does that mean? What I mean by that is the go to the orthopedic surgeon, the orthopedic surgeon says, well, in order to treat you, I need to get an MRI. And the claimant will go and schedule an MRI for a month later. In the meantime, we're paying wage replacement benefits because, again, their treatment course is being directed by the claimant themselves, and they are not really necessarily trying to get that MRI tomorrow or the next day. Uh, they're going to try to push or stretch that out. So we see them delaying necessary treatment and particularly delaying necessary testing, which increases our exposure because we're having to pay for lost time benefits for someone who really is on purpose not um, uh, aggressively pursuing all the medical treatment that they need. The claimant under our system here in New York only has to show medical evidence of disability every 90 days. That means they only have to go to the doctor every 90 days. And so what we see them doing is really stretching out their periods of temporary disability by stretching out their doctor visits. And they're planning the doctor visit 60 days or 90 days away from their last doctor visit. Now, if you were truly trying to get better and seeking curative care, 
you'd be going to the doctor as soon as you can. You'd, you'd go to the orthopedic surgeon and the orthopedic surgeon would say, hey, you need an MRI or a CAT scan so that I can determine what to do next. Well, you would go get that CAT scan as soon as you could and get right back to the surgeon as fast as you can because you know your situation, your medical situation is not being dealt with. But that's not what we see driving this system. We see um, extended periods of temporary disability uh, because the claimant is not affirmatively and actively and aggressively pursuing curative care. There's also a money factor that comes into play here. In addition to the money that we're paying in lost time benefits, it's that the way awards are calculated, and we're going to talk about this in an upcoming presentation, or scheduled loss of use awards, the claimant actually gets a higher scheduled loss of use award if they're out of work for a longer period of time. And so this behavior is quite self-serving and absolutely is being done for secondary gain. So, you know, temporary disability is uh, paying someone who's not working. And for that reason, they're going to have an incentive to try to stretch it out. And that's why I believe we must always attack on and challenge long periods of temporary disability. So let's talk about the first type of disability. It's called temporary total disability. And you often see it uh, abbreviated as TTD, temporary total disability. Where the claimant is temporary and totally disabled, we're really saying that they cannot work and they cannot earn any wages, but it's temporary in nature. So the chronicity of it is temporary. They're expected to recover. The, the claimant is entitled to the full allowable wage benefit, which is calculated at two-thirds of their pre-accident wage and, of course, uh, is subject to maximums and minimums. To determine the benefit amount, you multiply their average weekly wage times two-thirds of their average weekly wage, and that's what they're going to be entitled to. The maximums and minimums change every year, and the current maximum is $1,125.46 per week. And as you go back in time, you can see that the um, uh, maximum benefit has increased pretty dramatically over the last 10 years. Uh, in 2021, we saw the benefit increase nearly 10% to break the $1,000 barrier for the first time. And now it is up to $1,125 a week. Remember, that is tax-free. So uh, if you're trying to calculate how much money the claimant takes home, generally speaking, uh, this is going to be very commensurate with what they were earning pre-accident. The payment of temporary total disability is based solely on the medical impairment findings of their treating physician. Now remember, they're choosing their treating physician. So this is why they're not trying to pick the doctor that's going to get them well or better the fastest, they're picking the doctor who's going to find them out of work the longest. Vocational factors are not to be considered in accessing temporary total disability. Uh, New York does have a waiting period, uh, which is seven days, and we go back in and fill that first seven days and once 15 days or more of lost time is uh, 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 experienced. Now, even though it's called temporary total disability, that's a little bit of an oxymoron because you could be temporarily disabled for the rest of your life under the New York workers' compensation system. There is no upper limit on how long someone can be temporarily disabled. So that's crazy. So you've got a situation or a system where the claimant gets to choose their doctor, that doctor can write them out of work notes, and they could be kept out of work forever if you're not actively uh, defending that matter. Now, they did do some reform, and in 2017, uh, a, a change in the statute was made so that we can uh, ask for a credit if the claimant uh, has temporary total disability that exceeds 130 weeks, and we can argue that at that period, 
they had reached maximum medical improvement. Now that's roughly two and a half years post-accident. Uh, we can begin to get a credit. In practice, it's very difficult to assert that credit because we have to argue that the claimant had actually reached maximum medical improvement. And again, for all the reasons I've stated earlier, the claimant's trying to actively avoid a finding of maximum medical improvement. So even though the statute was changed in 2017, um, this has been a largely illusory opportunity for us to obtain a credit. Now, you can suspend temporary total disability benefits when we're able to show that the claimant has reached maximum medical improvement, when we've learned that they are no longer totally disabled, in other words, they have some ability to do something, when they fail to get supporting medical records to show that their condition is continuing, in other words, they literally fail to go to the doctor once every 90 days, which does happen, or when they voluntarily withdraw from the labor market, and finally, if we can show that any wage loss is completely unrelated to their workplace accident. For example, they've gone to jail and been incarcerated for some crime that they committed. Well, the reason they're not earning wages is not because they have a disability, it's because they're in jail, they, they were incarcerated. Another example would be separation from the employer based on something they did willfully to be separated. Uh, typically, that would be violation of a work rule, and the most common one I see is violation of our workplace drug or alcohol policy. So when we look into these unrelated reasons why the claimant is not working, we've got to look into the, the facts of what's going on. Um, when we're considering whether we should be paying them or not, we should be saying, wait, is there another reason uh, that they're losing time unrelated to this workplace accident? If the claimant is not working as a result of their comp claim, though, we continue to issue indemnity benefits based on their degree of disability. So it's really important that all parties, meaning your defense counsel, the insurance carrier, the employer, we all communicate with each other so we know what is the exact reason why this claimant is not working. Is it truly the workplace accident or is there something else going on? Termination or separation can be considered unrelated wage loss uh, but we're going to have to do some things to prove this. So I'm going to be communicating with the employer or carrier and saying, look, I need to see the disciplinary records, the resignation letter, termination documents, uh, or the fact that they went on on leave or disability for some other reason unrelated to the workplace injury. Uh, if you are paying benefits and you discover, wait a second, this person was terminated or separated for some other reason, we're going to need to go into court and make an argument and say, look, here's why we should no longer be exposed to paying this weekly wage replacement benefit, this temporary total disability benefit, because look, Judge, there's some other reason. So we've created a chart uh, to help you figure out what to do uh, when you are trying to suspend temporary total disability benefits. And again, this is done tactically during the case's life cycle to gain some leverage or momentum in the case and generally leverage or momentum towards settlement. So you can suspend temporary total disability benefits when the claimant has either returned to full duty work, reached maximum medical improvement, either by their own treating physician, which is very rare. More commonly, this would be established by our independent medical evaluator, or where they failed to produce up-to-date medical evidence, or where they've been proven to be voluntarily withdrawn from the labor market. So that's when you can stop paying those benefits. And again, that's going to be a tactical move you're going to do to create leverage in your case. Now, if the claimant is not temporarily totally disabled, they're less than totally disabled, you've actually got more options uh, to attack that entitlement or benefit. 
So if the claimant is less than 100% disabled, and again, uh, that would be a partial temporary disability, often called a temporary partial disability or TPD, you're going to see that the doctor is going to give them a percentage of temporary partial disability. In the old days, it used to be marked, moderate, or mild, and that would translate to 75% disabled, 50% disabled, or 25% disabled. Nowadays, we don't see the doctors using that anymore. In the last couple of years, the doctors, and again, this is because we're now using the um, CMS-1500 forms, which the forms uh, changed. Uh, now the doctors will actually write down the percentage of disability. They'll say 50%, 75%, 80%, 90% disabled. So you'll see a percentage in there. And the way you're going to ca um, calculate how much to pay them is take their average weekly wage, multiply it by that two-thirds, and then multiply that by the disability percentage that the doctor is finding. So in a great example, and we're looking at an example average weekly wage that we started working with in last month's presentation, at an average weekly wage of $804.25, 100% disabled would entitle the claimant to $536 a week, 75% disabled would entitle them to $402 a week, 50% disabled would entitle them to $268 a week, and 25% disability, which is a very mild disability, would entitle them to $134 a week, but that's actually less um, than the state minimum, which is $150 a week, so you would automatically increase that to $150 a week. So just quick examples of how this is calculated. A temporarily partially disabled claimant must continue to go to their doctor, again, every 90 days or less, to present updated medical, which shows that they have a continuing condition. So that's the first thing that they sometimes fail to do. They just fail to go to the doctor. They've got a very mild disability, and they're not being keeping up with seeing their physician. If you can offer them a light-duty job, they have a requirement to respond to that light-duty offer by taking the job. Okay, if it's within the restrictions that their doctor is providing for them, they have an, an affirmative statutory duty to absolutely come back and do that light duty offer. And that's why accommodated or light duty work is such an important thing to be able to offer to your injured workers. But if you're the kind of employer who cannot offer accommodated or light duty work, they still have to go look for work within their restrictions. And this is called, they have to demonstrate what's called labor market attachment. Again, this is something that a partially disabled claimant has to demonstrate that a totally uh, disabled claimant does not. They also have to not voluntarily withdraw from the labor market, because just like a temporarily totally disabled claimant, they can't say, oh, I'm retiring, but by the way, still pay me uh, for wage replacement. Well, you're, you affirmatively or voluntarily retired, that's the reason you're not getting paid. It's not because of your uh, injury or disability anymore. So, the most important thing here is to focus on these light duty opportunities. If you can try to bring, uh, make a light duty offer, we should absolutely do it. Now, there's lots of great psychosocial reasons um, be, to do this. We know statistically that employees who do not return to some type of work, whether it's transitional work or light duty work or accommodated work, within one year of the date of loss, they have less than a 25% chance of ever returning to gainful employment. So this is why it's so important to make these offers if you can do it. If you make a valid job offer, meaning the job offer is consistent with what their treating physician is saying they can do, and they refuse to return to work, 
you can then suspend benefits. And if you're under an order, a judicial order to pay benefits, you can go to court and say, I need to suspend these benefits. If you're not under judicial order, you can just simply stop paying benefits. Um, you're making the argument that they are not doing what they need to do and they are voluntarily withdrawing from the labor market. Now, what if you can't offer them a light duty position? Um, you just don't have one in your business or your business is of such a type that uh, there are no light duty or accommodated work positions. Well, if we can't offer them a light duty role, they have an affirmative duty to go out and look for a light duty role somewhere else. And the courts have said, you know what, maybe they don't even have to find a job, but they just have to try to find a job. And examples of the kinds of things that count as looking for a job are uh, enrolling in the One Stop Career Center, which is a job retraining program and um, uh, resume building service that's offered by New York State. It's totally free. You can do it on your phone. Uh, you don't have to even go anywhere. So simply registering your resume with the One Stop Career Center um, satisfies that requirement. Going through any rehabilitation or job training plan program or any vocational service that's offered by the state, that would also satisfy the requirement. Or of course, actually looking for a job within their medical restrictions and skill set. Now they don't have to actually get a job, they just have to be looking for one. So when you want to raise labor attachment, and again, we're always talking about the partially disabled claimant, the claimant has a duty to show a timely, diligent, and persistent search for a job. At a minimum, they should be looking for a job um, that is within their restrictions, uh, and they should just be recording. Here's who I contacted, here's the name of the employer, and here's the type of job I'm seeking. So that's what they should be um, looking for. If they're doing this, um, they're going to be found to be attached to the labor market, and you're not going to be able to challenge or attack their partial temporary disability benefits. And to make things easier, the New York State Workers' Compensation Board has actually come up with a form that the claimant can fill out. It's called the C-258 form. And that form, they can record all the places they look for a job. And I've seen many, many of these, hundreds of these, and the claimant says, I went on Indeed and I applied for six jobs. You know, that will be generally considered enough to show a labor market attachment and keep their benefits flowing. So when the claimant is on uh, less than total disability benefits, uh, we're going to suspend benefits when A, they've returned to full duty work, they've reached MMI, when they have a lack of up-to-date medical, or they've voluntarily withdrawn from the labor market by not seeking a job within their restrictions, by not registering for job uh, assistance with the state, without uh, and by failing to do any retraining or rehabilitation. Now, I'm gonna move to my next quick topic here, which is tentative or compromised rate. New York permits the parties, when they are disputing the amount of benefit that the claimant is allegedly entitled to, to stipulate to what's called a tentative or compromised rate. And this is essentially the party saying, look, there is some, maybe there is some uh, workability, maybe there isn't, but the parties don't want to go litigate this issue. And so the parties are just going to agree for a short period of time to allow the claimant to get some kind of benefit. Um, and it's usually, um, a compromise position. So for example, our IME doctor says the claimant is fine, has no disability at all, and therefore is entitled to no wage replacement benefits. And their doctor says the claimant is 100% disabled, has no workability. So it's a 0% a disability versus a 100% disability. Well, the parties can say, hey, we're going to compromise this. Let's do a 50% partial disability rate. 
uh, because we can't agree. And that's possible. I strongly recommend not compromising on tentative rates. And the reasons I don't like it are, if we agree to a tentative rate, we lose the ability to raise that labor attachment um, argument, which is such an important argument. And also, later in the case, when the case ultimately gets resolved, whether it's settled or not, they can still go back and say, oh, well, that period of time that was all tentative or a compromised rate, actually, I was totally disabled. And so you're going to have to litigate or resolve that issue anyway at the end of the case. So all you've done by kicking the can down the road is rob yourself of one of your best defenses to paying those benefits and also made your case more complicated or you just have to deal with that issue again later uh, in the case. Now, I don't like it. So for these reasons, it's our practice here at Lois to avoid compromising to tentative rates wherever possible. And there are maybe some limited circumstances where um, compromising makes sense. I'll give you a great example. Maybe you've already reached a settlement of the overall case for $100,000, let's say, on a Section 32. That's a lump sum dismissal. And all the parties have agreed, uh, and you're just waiting for the court to approve that, um, that settlement. Okay, in that circumstance where uh, you're going to continue to pay a tentative rate maybe because you really have resolved all issues in dispute and really the only issue left before the court is just approving um, or affirming that settlement that the parties have already reached. Okay, it makes sense. Like, let's be practical. Let's not fight over nothing. Uh, but that's relatively rare, and most of the time, a tentative rate should be avoided. So you can litigate on the issue of degree of disability, and we just kind of talked about what that looks like. The circumstance where the or under a payment order, our IME, for example, will come forward and say, hey, their disability has, is much less than what we're paying. And of course, their treating doctor is going to parrot whatever the claimant is telling them, oh, I can't work, I can barely even move my body. Uh, and they'll always have some much higher degree of disability. But remember, you can always litigate um, that issue. Um, that's a great opportunity to create the type of leverage or momentum you need to move the case to settlement. And again, this is another reason why we don't want to stipulate to a tentative rate. You're giving away that opportunity to challenge the claimant's ongoing disability, to test it, to have the claimant testify, maybe to have their doctors testify if that's necessary, and certainly to present um, the information from your own physician uh, to prove what their actual circumstances are. Again, a very important tool in your toolbox as you're looking to create leverage or create an opportunity for an overall settlement of these matters. All right, that's a little bit about lost time. Let's move into medical treatment. Medical treatment in New York is actually pretty favorable to the employer because once it's determined that the claimant um, has uh, met the basic requirements, meaning they had an accident, there was notice, the injury was causally related to the employment, all medical care is gonna be covered uh, and it's gonna be covered by the medical treatment guidelines with some exceptions. Um, there are some injuries that are not currently covered by medical treatment guidelines. Again, that's gonna be relatively rare. And so most of the care that the claimant is going to obtain is gonna be through the medical care guidelines. Now, there are currently 17 medical treatment guidelines for things like pain, low back injuries, neck injuries, knee, shoulder, carpal tunnel, ankle and foot injuries, elbow injuries, hip and groin disorders. Think about things like hernias hand, wrist, forearm injuries, interstitial lung disease, work-related asthma, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression and depressive disorders, eye disorders, traumatic brain injury, and of course, complex regional pain syndrome. Now, 
this is a greatly expanded list. And in fact, the list of um, medical treatment guidelines greatly expanded last year in 2022 to include lots of things that were not previously covered. For example, stress disorders, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, you know, some of the most difficult to treat and most resistant to objective or scientific um, diagnosing and um, testing are now covered by medical treatment guidelines. And again, this is good for you as an employer or carrier because it means that the care that the claimant's going to be able to obtain is going to be restrained or at least directed by medical treatment guidelines that are expected to be evidence-based and scientifically sound. The, all of the medical treatment guidelines that are currently in play um, have the goal of getting the claimant to maximum medical improvement. So this is very important in terms of controlling this care. Remember, you can't choose the doctor that the claimant treats with. You can't choose uh, the, the surgeon, for example, but the surgeon that the claimant um, selects is supposed to treat them consistent with the current medical treatment guidelines. And so there is some limit on some of the bad behavior that we see from these clinicians. I do not go in depth in this presentation into the medical treatment guidelines. And the reason for that is, I think there's actually great training on the guidelines on the Workers' Compensation Board's website. Um, really good training. We do it, in, we, and as part of our onboarding here at Lois Law Firm, all of our paraprofessionals and attorneys are required to go through the board training on the medical treatment guidelines because I think it's really good. I think they hired like a really good vendor that came up with the training. It's very useful. Uh, it's very well presented. There's lots of little modules and little tests you take as you go through the guidelines training. And so again, I recommend it very highly. Um, there's also a lookup tool. So you don't have to learn the thousands and thousands of pages of medical treatment guidelines. Each treatment guideline is about 200 pages. And again, there's 17 of them. So there's thousands of pages of this stuff. Uh, there's a lookup tool. So you can quickly, if you're dealing with a right arm rotator cuff tear, you can go right into that lookup tool, you can find exactly which guideline applies, and you can determine if the claimant's treating physician is truly treating them consistent with those medical treatment guidelines. Um, if you're already an expert on medical treatment guidelines, I would also direct you to the board's website and the, um, the URLs up on the screen here. Uh, in 2022, when they added all the new medical treatment guidelines, they came up with an update overview presentation on just what's new. So again, I think really useful for us. What I like the most about the new changes to the general principles is the recognition that technology has improved since our first guidelines came out in 2012, um, and that these guidelines now cover very subjective conditions like mental health. Um, interestingly now, the general principles recommend mental health referrals for claimants who have had a lack of progress in their treatment. I think that's kind of recognizing that hey, if someone's not getting better from their shoulder strain over the course of two years, they should probably be sent to a mental health professional to determine what's really going on here. Um, one of the bad things that I don't like is that functional capacity evaluations have been specifically prohibited, quote, during the early treatment, close quote, of the case. Um, and that's kind of an interesting thing that they've tried to um, reduce. Um, and the doctors can be asked now to do a virtual job site visit, which I think is incredibly interesting to have a doctor come in and FaceTime in and evaluate whether the light duty work that we are offering is consistent with that doctor's um, uh, uh, suggestions or, or, or treatment uh, program. 
all the existing medical treatment guidelines were changed in 2022, even in the ones that had been placed in, in service back in 2012. Um, there are more than 250 pages of changes to those existing original four guidelines. Um, and so one of the things that I like to point people to is they have now added some guidelines uh, for tapering from long-term opiates, which obviously are really complicating some of our cases here in that the claimant is maybe recovered from their overall injury, but they're you know addicted to these opiates. And so now there's some really good guidance from the board on ways to deal with those long-term opiate dependency type cases. In May of 2022, the board implemented a new system for um, resolving disputes over treatment under the medical treatment guidelines. And it came with a new concept called the prior authorization request or PAR request, along with new timelines and dates uh, for when those disputes can be resolved by the board. I do have a slide in here about calculating what calendar day means in New York. Uh, and that's because some of these PAR guidelines are calendar days versus business days. So what is a business day? It's a day a business is open, so it's Monday through Friday. What is a calendar day? It's every single one of those days in between. Doesn't, doesn't take into consideration if it's a Saturday or Sunday. And calendar day says that any period of time that's computed from a specific start day that ends on a Saturday, Sunday, or public holiday, the act may be done the next succeeding business day. So just keep that in mind when you are calculating your response times to these prior authorization requests in New York. How PARs work, here's a super simple uh, way they work. Let's say there's dispute about whether or not specific treatment should be provided. That will go to a level one reviewer and if ignored, that treatment will be granted. If it is denied or challenged, it will go to a level two reviewer, which will be a payer physician review who can then again challenge that. It will then go to the board, which would review the prior authorization request. And if the claim is unhappy with how the board adjudicates that, it can then go before a law judge who will then resolve that treatment dispute. So there is a, a multi-step process now to make sure that these medical disputes are being resolved quickly, accurately, and then they are getting to a law judge if the parties cannot resolve them. Now, how do you know as a claims professional if treatment should or should not be authorized? Well, again, I would point you to the medical treatment guidelines themselves. Look at those medical treatment guidelines lookup tool, but also consider the posture of the case, right? Challenging medical treatment is a tactic that you can utilize to generate some leverage in a matter, but it should be done when the case is stalled or when the claimant is clearly playing games. You'll see cases where the claimant's clearly playing games when they're delaying treatment, de delaying diagnostics, delaying testing, or seeking treatment that is simply nonsense. Uh, we're defending cases here all the time where the claimants had two years of physical therapy and they're claiming that they need more. It's, and it's you know, kind of patently ridiculous. Objectively, it's no longer curative at that point. Uh, the physical therapy in year five is not gonna get you any better. It might make you feel a little better, or it might have a palliative effect, and I'm not challenging that, uh, but really you should be thinking about utilizing the medical treatment guidelines to help control uh, medical treatment and also to make sure the claimant is getting curative care. We want them to get better, not simply get more treatment. Um, now, you'll also see in your cases that the, the board, when it resolves a medical dispute, will issue something called an order of the chair, directing either the medical to be approved or not approved, just be thoughtful about that. These cannot be appealed. The way you challenge an order of the chair 
uh, is by directly writing correspondence to the board saying this order of the chair should be rescinded and explain why. Some of the issues I see with onboard are where we're trying to resolve a case or create leverage in a case to move this case into a posture for settlement. Um, and we want to make sure that we're not approving more treatment or surgeries or doing a restart or even worse, a new body part bringing into a case that otherwise would be ready for resolution. So um, the things I see with the onboard are, well, you have to be very careful about this. Let's make sure as claim professionals that we are doing a good job. Usually I'm seeing a lot of my clients using a medical utilization review or even a vendor to uh, handle the onboard requests. But let's be thoughtful about what we're doing them. And obviously, onboard does not end the, the old game of repetitive resubmitting. Um, and what that means is the clinician is wants to do some uh, medical treatment, which is either experimental or repetitive, meaning they've already done this three times, and they want to do it now at the fourth time, maybe this will be the charm. Uh, and in the old days, they used to um, like to fax the adjuster or the claims professional and hope that they missed the fax, and then the treatment would be authorized. Now they just keep resubmitting it into this electronic system and hope that you miss it. So just be thoughtful about trying to challenge those repetitive resubmits. Now, one of the ways we challenge medical is by getting an independent medical examination, which is specifically allowed by Section 137 of our statute. The challenge of getting an IMEs are that your IME, again, very useful in challenging unnecessary care and certainly challenging the claimant's workability or lack of workability, but there are some limits to it. IMEs in New York are truly independent. Uh, that's not to say they're always impartial, but they are independent. We don't have the, the right to uh, really control and direct the IME as much as you can in other states. You can send a cover letter to the IME, uh, but you really can't communicate with them. And once the IME does their um, evaluation of the claimant, they then have to submit their report to all parties in the same manner and on the same day and in the same way, which means we don't get an advanced copy, for example, of the report. They also have to submit that report to all parties within 10 days. So again, you're not getting a heads up, you're not getting an advanced opportunity, and we're not allowed to communicate with them. You know, we're not allowed to uh, send them private information or have private communications with them that are not being copied to all parties. So this makes getting an IME in New York kind of a challenge, and there's also a lot of grounds here for our adversary to object to our independent medical examiner's report. So we say, and we are getting independent medical examination, and again, very important to help you defend your case fully, a great cover letter is the key. Just remember, that that cover letter is going to be provided to all parties. So you can't provide anything to the IME doctor that's not going to be provided to all the parties and filed in the electronic docketing system. We don't have the opportunity in this system to coach or have any kind of ex parte communications with our doctor. So again, this is going to be a truly independent medical exam. Uh, how do we influence what the doctor is going to say? Well, the answer is first, you get to pick your doctor, so it's not like a random uh, panel of doctors. So you're going to pick a doctor who you're going to have some uh, faith and 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 some uh, feeling that they're going to be less paternalistic and more objective. And remember, you can send them that cover letter that explains what's going on in the case and ask the doctor specific questions. So you do have the opportunity to do that. The doctor has 10 days to produce that written report and then must send it to all parties same way, same day. And so in that way, there is some um, independence to that examination and it should be useful. 
All right, let's close this up and turn over to questions, but let's just remember challenges to temporary disability or medical treatment, these are gonna generally be tactical challenges. You're not gonna win the case on a challenge, but you are going to get that leverage that you're trying to look for to get to settlement. The issue being litigated, uh, when an issue is being litigated, um, you're gonna hear from us some concrete next actions that we're gonna wanna take so that we get this case teed up in the right position. If you're thinking about challenging temporary disability or medical treatment and your counsel's giving you advice, the I would always tell my clients, look, if the litigating of paralegal or attorney can't explain to you why they're challenging that specific piece of medical or that temporary disability benefit, why they're challenging it in one sentence, simple English, they're probably going on an adventure and you should probably be thoughtful about whether you want to do this or not, okay? Um, remember, these are tactical moves, and so when you're doing them, you want this tactic to elicit some response, and the, typically the response we want to get is, okay, let's settle my case, let's stop this, right? That's generally what you're trying to do here. Um, we should always be using common sense when considering litigating medical or temporary disability because, again, these are going to be tactical uh, decisions that we're making that are not going to uh, close the case, but they are going to bring the parties together for that discussion. All right, that's what I wanted to share with everybody today. Those are my prepared remarks. Let's turn over to questions and answers. Let me bring up my question panel here and see what I have. Okay, first question comes from Aaron. Greg, how does uh, stipulating to a partial rate affect labor market attachment? If the IME indicates a 50% disability and the treating indicates a 75% disability, uh, the parties agree on a split but continue labor market attachment, what would be the outcome? Well, that's the challenge, Aaron. Once you've stipulated uh, to a tentative rate, you've lost your ability to argue about labor market attachment. So those things are exclusive of each other. If I could stipulate to a tentative rate and still bring my labor market attachment arguments, I would probably be in favor of it, right? Because hey, in the short term, we're compromising what we can compromise on, but we're gonna go and attack uh, whether or not they are truly attached to the labor market. Yeah, I would love to do that, but the answer is um, no, you can't. Um, so that's a great question, thanks, Aaron. Uh, next question comes from Gilbert. Gilbert says, can the adjuster schedule and authorize an interim treating physician appointment earlier than the 90-day requirement? If requested, will the doctor set the appointment? Is the treating physician required to answer written questions about the treatment plan and the expected maximum medical improvement date? Okay, so no, you're, the adjuster, unfortunately, can't go out there and schedule appointments. Uh, they could do that, go out and schedule the appointments, but the claimant doesn't have to go, right? Because we can't control and direct their medical. We can offer to help them, and in circumstances where the claimant really does have their own best interests at heart, yeah, like they should be agreeing with that, um, but in reality, they don't do that, and they do stretch this out. So as an ag aggressive or active claims professional who goes out and schedules things and the claimant shows up, that's wonderful. They can do that voluntarily, but we have no way of requiring them to go to those events. Um, next, if requested, will the doctor set the appointment? Yeah, it's generally not the doctor who's um, delaying this. It really is the claimant. So sometimes you can communicate with the physician. Again, be very careful about that. You'd wanna do that in writing so that there's no argument that there's an undue influence and say, hello, physician, can't you see this person sooner? Many times the doctor will say, sure, I could see them sooner, but that's not when they're coming back. 
I've seen claimants make every argument as to why they couldn't go to their MRI or couldn't get their CAT scan. It's like, oh, it's my dog's birthday that day. I can't do anything that day. Or, oh, my kid's sick from school. Just every excuse in the world to continue to delay their care. Um, is the treating physician required to answer written questions about the treatment plan and the expected MMI date? Yeah, you can send them uh, questions. They will generally just ignore you. Uh, these are uh, clinicians who are very familiar with the workers' compensation system, and so they know that there's nothing that you can do, and they don't have any duty to respond to you, and so they simply will not. So unfortunately, those two great ideas, um, Gilbert, are not ones that you can really rely on. So two good questions. Um, thank you for um, Gilbert and Aaron for asking them. Uh, and that wraps up today. So let's talk about what's coming up next. In April, we're going to talk about common litigation issues. And in May, we're going to start talking about discovery, hearings, trials, and appeals. Thanks for coming, everybody. Have a great rest of your week.